Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke 9? Luke 9 will be reading verses 28 to 36. As we draw nearer to the pause that we will take in Luke at the end of chapter, near the end of chapter 9, verse 51, we'll pause. And we come here to these last events before this transition in Jesus' ministry. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord God, as we come before you and open your word, open our hearts. And we ask you to do this, and we ask it frequently, for we know the weakness of our flesh, we know the weakness of our minds, we know how finite we are, and that we ask to grasp the words of life and truth, the words that are glorious, and bring them to our minds, and may they be of comfort to us, instruction to us, and glory to your name, we pray. Amen. Before I do read, I wanted to give one comment. This is the transfiguration, the glory of Christ. As I read it, I kept thinking to myself, oh, to have been there, oh, to have been able to have had a place on that mountain and see Jesus transfigured. What a gift. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, this is just a foretaste of what is ours to see, of what is ours to see in a far greater measure and one that we should be excited to see. This is the one who's more dear to us than any living being. And we read here of his glory. We read here of how pure he is, how worthy he is. And so not only let us be instructed today, but let us long for the time when this glory will not recede, or at least to our eyes, this glory will not be taken away, but will shine forevermore, and we will be in the presence of this glory. With that on our minds and hearts, let's read Luke 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Ascends the reading of this account, this glorious account. People of God, we need more glory gazing. We need more glory gazing. We live in a world that is decidedly, and I don't know if this is a word, unglorious, not gloriful, gloried in any sense of the imagination, is the exact opposite of glory. 
We live in a very difficult world, a world that comes with suffering and mourning, and a world that even in this context of what Jesus is teaching will be one that bears a cross. And in this world we need glory-gazing And what does that mean? It means actually we need really Christ-gazing. To fix our eyes, our attention, or even more, as we see in this text, our ears to listen. Not only to see what's before us in glory, but to listen to the one who speaks. We need Jesus at the center of our life. And we would say, is it that basic? And the answer is, of course, it is. Last time we were going through the basics of the faith in that we are called to bear a cross. We are called to suffer. And in here we see another basic of the faith. To fix your gaze on Christ, but to do so properly. To do so where we're not distracted by our own minds and thoughts. We're not distracted by our plan for what God is doing. Rather, we see Jesus' glory and we hear his words. And the two become, in our minds, the same thing. They are properly interpreting another, the glory of Christ, and what he says, what he's teaching. This is an amazing event. You see, as the text begins, it clearly is linking what happens to what preceded we can see that, as it says, about eight days after this. It's, it's linking it. So some time passed, but he's trying to draw attention to these last conversations. He wants these conversations about suffering and death that we went through last time to now be linked to this event of transfiguration. Why would that be? Well, I think we would see is the truth that cross-bearing can only be tolerated by glory-gazing. That's our theme. Cross-bearing can only be tolerated by glory-gazing. What do we mean by that glory-gazing? It's the glory of Christ. It's looking to Him. How else can we tolerate bearing of a cross? You see, what had happened in the previous section would really seem to take the wind out of all our sails when in it. You seek a great kingdom. You seek the glory of God. The King has come. And what does that mean? Suffering and death. And just... There goes. The sails just depress. The boat stops moving. What's to to propel us on into that? And then Luke says, well, about eight days after that, this event happened. Which means for us that as we head into the call, the duty to bear a cross, to suffer, to even die to self, denying all that we are for the sake of Christ, how will we do that? Fix our gaze on who Christ is, fix our gaze on his glory to assure us of what's to come, to assure us of who we follow. You see, this is that type of thing that would amp us up to to go into this mission. Yes, the mission ahead is hard. Yes, it is bearing the cross. And yes, it is death. But see the glory of the one you follow. See what awaits you. Listen to his words. He's true, he's right, he's the chosen one of God. That's, that's really in, in small form, a, a summary form of what I could say this message is. A call to do just that. This is where we see the glory of God. God has a final design. God has a final design. There's a statement that eschatology precedes soteriology. It's a, it's, a, it's a thick statement. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean there's a goal in place that was always God's plan, 
before the salvation account ever happened. It means this is not haphazard. It means God has his destination in mind. If you were to build a house, you would not build it without a blueprint. There would be a blueprint in place, and you would follow that. You see, there's a plan that has a destination, and yes, everything has to happen. The house has to be built, the foundation needs to be laid, the wood needs to be cut, the structure needs to be formed, but it will be formed, and it's being built into the plan of God. And that's what's going on here. You see, what does that mean for us? It means suffering isn't an accident to this. It means living for God isn't just something that he had to very wisely adapt to. It means this is how he would go about building his kingdom. The plan is in, is in place. The fulfillment is in mind. And, and the disciples are gifted, and we are gifted through them, to catch a little glimpse of that glory. To catch a little glimpse of that house built, that structure in mind. Here's where we're headed So keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Keep your eyes fixed on the goal, the glory of Christ. And as well, he leads us. So that glory will be one in which we share. That glory is one that as we follow him will be ours as well. You can see that in the fact that even Moses and Elijah, these sinful men, yes, we acknowledge them as well-known heroic saints, but they were sinful men like, like all others. Even they are glorified. We catch a glimpse of that in us, and we'll see that as we are to tolerate cross-bearing through glory-gazing, we look first, then, at the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. The text says that it happens while Jesus was praying, but what exactly happened? It says that Jesus' appearance really was changed. It became other. That's what Luke's trying to say. It was Jesus, clearly him, but it was unlike him as it was before. His flesh and incarnation veiled this glory, but for this brief moment, the the flesh is and the veil is removed, it's peeled back, and we see, or the disciples see, the glory of Jesus himself. In the other gospel accounts, Mark describes this and says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, if you're like me, the the image that comes to your mind shouldn't just be of a really white shirt that was bleached really well. You know, that that, that could be what comes to our minds, but it it wasn't that. What the disciples are trying to describe is really undescribable glory. And the best way they can do it is to say this, this glow, this dazzlingness, as if it was light, as if the sun was on earth. And, and that's what they're trying to depict, but it's something far greater than, than a human that has light shining out of him. This is just the best way that they can describe it. The glory is intense. It's marvelous. It, it causes the disciples to, to be in awe and wonder at what they're seeing. Make no mistake, too, this happens on a mountain while Jesus is praying. Often encounters with the divine, often God speaks to his people on a mountaintop. Not only in that day and age was the mountaintop associated with the presence of gods, that's where they would build temples to worship him, and and the Lord uses that as well, or I actually think the pagan nations picked up on truths that had happened, that God would meet with his people on these mountains Think Mount Sinai. Think when Elijah had come to another mountain and encountered the voice of the Lord. And Jesus does as well. It happens while he's praying. You know that a lot of these events happen when Jesus is in prayer. 
and his close disciples are with him. Moses and Elijah appear. Why Moses and Elijah? Why those two? There's, there's a, a vast array of prophets and kings and figures you could pull. Why did the Lord bring them? Well, Moses and Elijah represent the whole revelation of God. The Torah, the law is Moses. Elijah is the prophets. It represents all of God's word. That's one thing going on here. And so they represent all of that, all of that revelation. Here's these two figures that can stand in to mean that. But I think it might mean more as well. Moses was associated with the founding of the nation, with the first exodus. He was the one who led them. He was the one who brought the nation out of slavery and into or to the promised land. And so he's associated with the origins and the setting up of the kingdom in, in one degree. And then you have Elijah, and Elijah is associated with the fulfillment, right? There's that prophecy that Elijah would come. He would be the messenger, the, the, the one to declare the presence of the Messiah himself. And so these two figures not only represent all of God's word, they represent the past and the first exodus as well as a foretaste or, or the coming exodus in Elijah. And why do we say that? We say that with what they're discussing. It says that they are discussing what but Jesus' departure. That departure is another word that we translate as exodus. They're discussing with Jesus his own exodus. So it seems that these two figures are chosen for that very purpose, the full revelation of God as well as the full pathway of redemptive history beginning, anticipation in the future. Here they are, and they're discussing with Jesus all these things. Oh, to have been there. Oh, to have been a fly on that wall. What would that have been like? Jesus has been surrounded by people like us. We just don't get it. The disciples don't get it. He, you, you, you would just imagine, I mean, we would be this way, that you'd have no time for those around you who are so dense, it seems. They don't understand it. And now Jesus is able to communicate with those who've been sent by the Father himself to talk to him about the departure. They know what's going on. This is what they speak of. What an amazing event to speak of his departure, to speak of his exodus. And so what did they talk about? We don't know for sure other than they spoke of that departure. Why? Was it, was it to steal Jesus? Was it to assure Jesus of what was to come? It could have been. It could have been in that sense of ministering to him to strengthen him. We don't know. The disciples only catch the tail end of it. They're asleep. They wake up. It's, it's as if they're quite groggy when they're waking up, sort of the way we might be on our worst morning and kind of like, what's going on? What is this? And then they start to realize that, that these three figures are in front of them. These three figures are glorious. Moses and Elijah bear witness for Jesus. They come and have a silent conversation with him, at least to us but speak of his exodus. So that's key here that they're discussing his exodus because what's that mean? What does that mean for Jesus? It means what he's going to do in Jerusalem. This is why we've been saying it. This chapter serves as a transition point in Jesus' ministry. It's shifting, it's gearing up for what's to come, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension. That's the exodus. That's the true exodus. Moses had, had an exodus, but it wasn't the real true one. It pointed to this. 
the one Jesus would bring about, and that's what they talk about. So that's the glory of Jesus, a glorious portrayal, glorious revelation of who our Savior is as that veil is briefly lifted. And we see who we follow. He's glorious. Then we see the response of Peter. The response of Peter. Peter, James, and John make their appearance. They catch the tail end of the scene. In fact, this whole account is written seemingly from the vantage point of the disciples, what they saw, how they experienced it. And so they awake, and they are in awe of what they see, but they also notice Moses and Elijah are departing. And so Peter blurts out, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, in case we don't get it, the text makes it clear that this request was pretty foolish. It says, he said this not knowing what he said. He just blurted this out in in typical Peter fashion. I I could just say in in typical human fashion, what we do. He, He blurts out, this is great! Let's keep them here! Let's build tents, or the word could be even translated tabernacles, for all three of you. Let's keep this glory going. Don't depart. Stay here. It might seem like a pretty normal request, all things considered, right? Who wouldn't want to keep them here? But it's actually rather wrong placed. I think the best way to describe what Peter's doing here is he's speaking of matters he just doesn't get. And so even his request shows he doesn't understand what's happening. Moses and Elijah did not come to stay. They didn't come to descend from the mountain with Jesus as these three glorified figures to to just wipe away all in their path, to come down and descend this mountain with glory that would shock the people and establish the kingdom. That's likely what the disciples wanted. Here's these two figures, here's Jesus, they're glorified. Now things are really looking up. Now things are happening the way we wanted. That's likely what Peter's talking about and thinking. So he wants to preserve this time, but you see, he doesn't get it. What were they speaking about? They were speaking about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, his death, what would follow after that. That is what they were talking about. So you see how trying to keep them there is not even the plan that Jesus has been talking to them about, not even what they've been teaching. Again, what does Jesus have to to do to remind them? He had just spoken of the need for cross-bearing and dying and being rejected by all, and at this account, Peter doesn't seem to hear any of that, and rather, let's go with the glory theme. That seems like a better way. That seems like the right way, right? Peter's asking and showing he doesn't really understand. He fails to realize as well that the kingdom doesn't need Moses and Elijah. They're not needed for this. They came for this purpose. They came to to speak to Jesus. They came as a way of revealing to the disciples who Jesus was, his glory. They came to talk about his departure and to leave themselves That's why they came. They didn't come for any other purpose. Their time had been spent. They weren't needed for the kingdom. And so if if Peter's wanting their aid, if Peter's wanting to keep them there so that they could help in the process, he doesn't understand it. If he's wanting to, to keep them there on an equal level with Christ, that's what some commentators will look at. They'll say he wanted to build three tabernacles for them all as he's not understanding the identity. And that's possible there as well, that he was failing to realize that they were far beneath Christ. 
And to raise them to that level was was wrong-footed, was in the wrong place. Or if he's trying to simply tether them there to keep this glorious experience going, again, it shows he doesn't understand the plan and the mission. He doesn't understand the nature of the exodus. And so, at the very least, his statements are inadequate and unnecessary. He, as a man, wants to build a tent for these men, and and even the, the descent of the glory cloud of God shows that God is able to provide far greater dwellings, far greater presence than what these men could provide. It's inadequate, what he's even asking. It's unnecessary. It's just ignorant. We have to be careful as well that we don't confuse our plan with God's, even when it seems to fit our own design, even when it seems to make sense. Like I said, Likely, Peter, James, and John were like, this is it. This is the right way. We're, we're seeing the glory of the kingdom come now. We've been awaiting this. That's likely their response. And, and at that moment, it, it may have seemed to fit, but he wasn't listening to the words of Jesus. And there's perhaps even a rebuke in the words of the Father. Not only does the Father declare who the identity is of Jesus, But he also says, listen to him. In light of the context, what Jesus has been declaring, in light of the way they keep showing ignorance, it shows they need further instruction. They need to listen to this one who they've seen glorified. It isn't just enough to see him glorified and then try to use him for your designs. You see his glory and you listen to his word. That's how it has to be. And and the whole intent here is to assure them of what they're doing to provide them comfort and peace. Like I said, this is like the, the rousing speech of a commander before a battle. It's meant to tell them what you have to do is very difficult. And so I leave you with this image. I leave you with the glory of Christ that you may be able to do it. That's what's going on here. That's what needed to be seen. The the correct response would be, I see the glory of Jesus even as I see the need for the cross. The glory revealed comforts me in the knowledge of cross-bearing. Suffering will give way to glory. Suffering will give way to glory. There's the truth that's present here. That's likely what Moses and Elijah were even talking about. The glory that would come through this exodus. What would be accomplished? So we've seen the glory of Jesus, we've seen the response of Peter, and now we hear the voice of the Father. Even as Peter's speaking, the glory cloud of the Lord surrounds them all, and this isn't just a cloud on a mountain that would not have brought this effect. They would not have been terrified as they are just because of a cloud. Again, what's being described here is the glory of God himself. This cloud appears throughout Scripture, the glory cloud of the Lord. One place that even has similarities to our own text is Exodus 24. I'm going to read Exodus 24, 15 through 18. This is with one of the figures who appeared in our own text as well. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. 
There's Moses present in our text. There's the mountain. We have a mountain present in our text. There's the glory cloud of the Lord descending on it. And that's what happened. And so Peter, James, and John are already waking up from sleep, wondering what's happened, trying to, to, to keep them there, trying to preserve it. While Peter's speaking, all of a sudden descends this, this glory cloud. And they're terrified. They're terrified, but the voice of the Lord is really what brings awe and fear. Out of the midst of the cloud, the Father speaks, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Remember back to Jesus' baptism. At the start of the ministry, the Father spoke at His baptism and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here we have another another confirmation of who Jesus is. That's what Luke's been doing up to this point. The crowds have asked repeatedly, who is this man? The disciples have asked, who is this one who can calm the seas or, or to, to drive demons away? Herod's been asking this question, who is this person? Peter answered it in the last text. He gave his confession, you're the Messiah. And now the Father gives that definitive word. Yes, indeed, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That statement is very similar and draws our attention to Isaiah 41, Isaiah 42, verse 1, when the Lord had spoken this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So what the Father is doing here is declaring that his Son is also the Messiah. But in using this text that references Isaiah 42, there's likely a connection as well to the suffering servant of Isaiah, which fits this text very well. The topics of suffering and what would, what would be undergone by the Messiah himself. And this, this statement of the Father then links the Son, the Messiah, the suffering servant, and it puts it on Jesus himself. Listen to him. Listen to him. The Lord had revealed this would happen. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and following. This is what the Lord had spoken through Moses to the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, that's like Moses, like you, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That prophecy, that those words, was one that extended to all the prophets that the Lord would raise up, but in true fulfillment, it had in mind Jesus, who is the definitive word of the Lord. And the Father himself, out of a radiant cloud of glory, tells those who would found the church, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. 
That is what we're called to do. See his glory, listen to his words. Follow him, obey him, hear him. That's the path to kingdom success. It's also the path to cross-bearing. Fix your gaze on glory. Cross-bearing is tolerated by glory-gazing. But we fix our glory on the glory of Christ. Our gaze, I mean, on the glory of Christ. That's how we endure. See his glory, know his plan, hear his words. As we close this morning, I want us to turn to another text. If you would turn to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, we're going to read verses 16 to 21. I want us to turn here so we can see it. You see, the disciples didn't get it now. Our text ends with them remaining silent. Our text ends with them not really knowing what to make of it, truly. And in the other Gospels, they are told not to discuss this. For the very same reason we talked about last time, that they didn't fully get it yet. And now they do. And we read Peter's words in 2 Peter 1, 16-21 about this same event. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. If I could say it this way, Peter is opting to echo the voice of the Father that he had once heard himself. Listen to him. Listen to him. He didn't get it yet. They didn't understand it yet, but they would. How do you reach this this glory that Peter talks about? It's by hearing the eyewitness accounts of those who saw his majesty. It's by following the beloved Son It's by trusting the witness of these men and the voice of the Father. It's by trusting the prophetic word that Peter says is more fully confirmed. We've seen it happen. And they bear witness to this. And we would do that, as he says, that we would obey this and pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Cross-bearing is tolerated by glory-gazing. Let us look and be assured of where we are going and how we will get there 
by the glory of the Son, who on that mountain was majestic and full of awe and grandeur. And we are to listen to his words. We should be assured of this and comforted in it. What awaits us is dwelling in this same glory cloud, I could put it that way, the same heavenly revelation of Jesus and God himself. When one is with Jesus, one is in the cloud of glory. This is the assurance, and people of God listen to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, having been meditating on, having hearing the glory of Christ and seeing what is displayed. And we pray that we would be instructed and we would be comforted and assured that we too will reach the destination, that there is a plan in place, and that as we follow your your chosen one, your suffering servant to the Messiah, we would see glory awaits and that it's the glory of Christ. This is our strength. This is why we follow him. Assure us and comfort us then in our day-to-day life. And Lord, may we be those to listen to the word and to follow it, to be submissive to it. We pray this in your great and glorious name. Amen.